My Wax Museum is a proud member of the Creative Grapevine. If you're enjoying listening to My Wax Museum, we would love it if you'd leave us a review. You can do that at ratethispodcast.com slash wax. That's ratethispodcast.com slash wax and leave us a review. You can do that right while you're listening to the show. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. I'm your host, Alex Williams, and today I'm joined by my friend and a fellow podcaster, Yisil Kim. From South Korea to Guam to the northeastern United States, and now to Italy, Yisil has lived all over the Northern Hemisphere. She's lived a life of serendipity and even has a podcast called The Serendipity Stories. More on that later. And remember, after today's show, make five minutes to listen intently to the people around you. Yisil Kim, welcome to My Wax Museum. Thank you for having me. So I always start every episode with uh, asking how we know each other. So if you want to jump in and explain how we got in touch and uh, and then what we're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, am working on a podcast called The Serendipity Stories and I uh, had to hire an editor who because I have no technical skills, but a big vision <laughs> and wanted a high standard and she happened to know Alexandra, who creates uh, Podraland, uh, through, again, a serendipitous moment of kind of crossing each other's path at a conference, who had just recently done a podcast with you. And so it's kind of a chain of events, and some might call serendipity, that led us together here. Yeah, and uh, we'll be talking about serendipity throughout this episode um, cause I think, I feel like it's more of a theme in everybody's lives, but I, I feel like you've really, really tapped into that, especially with your show, um, serendipity stories, which is awesome. We'll plug it more at the end, but, um, it is fantastic. So with that, uh, where are you from originally? So I was born in Korea and in Italy, everybody asked me, are you from the North or South? I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> The last last person that escaped North Korea didn't really make it that far, right? Uh, but <laughs> so yeah, from South Korea, from Seoul, and uh, but funny story, my uh, parents uh, moved us to Guam, which is a territory of the United States, similar to Puerto Rico, middle of the Pacific Ocean. And when people say, "Oh, what is it close to?" and I'm like, "Nothing." <laughs> The Marianas Trench, which is like the deepest, you know, uh, hole in the, in the ocean. Uh, and my visa didn't come out in time. So my parents left me with my grandmother and aunt for a whole year while there was this paperwork mess. And my parents and my little sister, who was just born at the time, moved to Guam. Uh, so eventually I, um, I was able to live then with my family and I lived there until the age of 12. Wow. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm curious a little bit. I, I've learned a little bit about um, U.S. territories and, and how, they, how they work and each one kind of seems to have a few different quirks about how it works. Um, so how does it work in Guam? Like what was that like? 
So Guam was a blend of, I think, American culture, uh, the Chamoran culture, which is the name of the natives who live there and the name of the language, and then Asian culture as well. So back in the 90s, Guam was known as a tourist destination. Um, and uh, and so that a lot of Japanese and Korean tourists would come uh, for their honeymoons usually. Then it was, it also had an Air Force base and a Naval base and was really, uh, played an important role during uh, World War II as like a fueling station. The Japanese uh, versus American troops fought in Guam, in Saipan, along those, those territories there. And yeah, and it was, uh, it's, it's this little beautiful Pacific um, paradise where we lived over a cliff, uh, where again, you could hear just all this beautiful um, waves crashing every morning. I remember we had papaya trees, lemon trees growing in the back and just, you know, take one and just pop it in our mouths. It was just kind of like a beautiful, idyllic life. Um, always 100% humidity. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, but it didn't bother me because that's all I knew. I was super tan all the time. And uh, every time I would go back to Korea on holidays, n- nobody thought I was Korean because I was so dark. And to have like light skin was a hallmark of being a Korean. So there was there was that dynamic as well. Um, and yeah, in an economy that up until um, the financial crisis in Asia was was thriving mostly based on tourism. That's really interesting. Um, and so when uh, you said you moved from Guam when you were 12, is that right? Yeah. And, and where did you go to? So what had happened is in 97, 98, there was the Asian economic crisis. And so basically when you have an economic crisis, people don't go on honeymoons and like tropical paradises. And my parents owned uh, a multitude of businesses. They were truly serial entrepreneurs. They had the first driving school. They had a rental car business. I think they were in telecoms for a while and they were just overextended. And so what had happened was literally overnight, uh, we had just come back from summer vacation in Korea and it was two days before school and my parent, and it was a private school And my parents announced that they couldn't afford um, for us to live in Guam anymore. And so we actually moved back to Korea Uh, and we lived there for a year, um, first like in a bedroom of my grandparents and then with my aunts and finally got our own place. But it was like a huge shock because, uh, you know, like I was supposed to start school next day. Then I'm, I'm back in Korea where I didn't even speak Korean very well. It was very hard to integrate. We, you know, I had lost all my friends in this lifestyle that I was accustomed to back in back in Guam, and so that was a very troubling time. But um, you know, the funny thing was, we were actually illegal immigrants because we had already gotten our American citizenship, and back then you couldn't have dual citizenship with uh, Korea because there's still an ongoing war. And because men have to subscribe to the military, I, I mean, so this all trickles down. And anyway, so we were actually illegal immigrants in Korea. So we had to decide, oh my gosh, where are we going to go? And at, at this point, Koreans were 
trying to find all kinds of ways to get their kids to study in America because of the better opportunities. There's just more opportunities than there are in Korea. And so my parents made the hard decision and they were like, you know, let's go to America. We worked hard to get our American citizenship. Um, our kids are much more fluent in English than they are in Korean and we want the best for them. So we left in, um, I think, August 2000 from Korea to Maryland and uh, with eight boxes and $3,000 in our pockets and made our new life over here in America. Wow. Okay. That's that's crazy. That would be so strange being an illegal immigrant in the country you were born in. Like what an what an odd odd thing. And I know I know the US has some interesting rules on on citizenship too and and uh yeah, that is that is very interesting. So, okay, so you end up in Maryland. What what was that like? Because you were already at least somewhat accustomed to that U.S. culture, um, but then obviously Maryland's significantly different from Guam. What was like the first thing you noticed when you got there? Well, so the only thing I knew about America, and I had only been to America once before we moved, and that was to Disneyland. So that's not really representative of like culture in Maryland. And I was uh, in Montgomery County, which is technically, I think, the sixth richest county in America. But we lived on like the poor side of town. And uh, there's just even within Montgomery County, just such economic disparity. And uh, the only other thing I knew about the culture going into middle school was uh, what I read from the Babysitter's Club. <laughs> and my middle school was nothing like the Babysitter's Club. It was 90%, I think, uh, Hispanic and African-American. The other Asians uh, in the school tended to be, um, I mean, it's a derogatory terms, but fobs, like fresh off the boat, they would say. So really kids from, let's say, Korea, China, Vietnam, who didn't speak English very well. And I remember the first day of middle school, they put me in the ESL classes, the English as a second language class, because all they did was see my face. They saw I had just come from Korea and they saw my name and they made all these assumptions about me. And I remember the teacher giving me a math test and an English test. And I completed it in like five minutes because they were asking me to do addition or multiplication, which I learned in kindergarten. And also, it was my first time going to a public school. So that was another another shift. And she's like, oh, no, like you, you maybe you didn't understand what I was saying. You need to fill out like both sides and you have to do all of it. I'm like, look, lady, like I finished both of it. And she's like, oh, my gosh, we like put you in the wrong class. And the next day I was like in on the honors and gifted program. But, you know, it was just from the beginning, it was always being an outsider my whole life. And that theme has continued and uh, it shaped me to be who I am today. But that it, it, it was it was a definitely a, a culture shock, you know, of of um, free like, you know, we came with three thousand dollars. So we were I was on free and reduced lunches and I didn't realize that that came with stigmas. Um, my parents were working seven days a week, so we had to like fend for ourselves. And in the meantime, there was all this pressure to perform academically, even though we had like just arrived and I was in the seventh grade. So it was definitely a tough transition um, culturally, economically, but 
you know, we, we definitely made the most of it and worked together as a family. Yeah. Did you find, um, like, did, did you make friends easily when you got there? Like, did you, what was that adjustment to, to social life? Like, I think even as like a young kid, I was always trying to be the leader of groups and it's easy when you, you know, know kids and, you know, create groups. I definitely didn't have my best friends until I went to high school and I softened myself a little bit because, I mean, I just had a one track mind. I was like, I got to get into a good college. That was like my dream in life because that's what was instilled in me since the age of two. Like, I'm pretty sure my first words were like Harvard or Yale (laughs) with fun fact. I didn't apply to either and I didn't go to either of them, but really it was just, I was very at such a young age, very focused um, and very ambitious. And so, and very sarcastic because I was just going, you know, you're a teenager, you're going through so much already with hormonal changes. And plus you have all this expectation from your parents and you've had such a shift in your life that it was difficult for me to relate. I think I got along better with some of uh, the guys who I felt less judged by. And I also wasn't the kind of person that would just go along for the sake of going along, kind of a troublemaker. So I'd always challenge people, which doesn't go too well with, I think, like female groups. But ultimately, I think by junior and high, uh, junior and senior year, I found my really core group of like two best friends that we're still in touch with now. And, uh, but I don't see high school very fondly in terms of like the social groups. Like I said, I was like one of, 15 Asians. Um, there was definitely more African Americans and Hispanic groups. Uh, and I was also in like AP classes and these special leadership training institute program. And so we were always kind of segregated anyways, which made it hard to mingle within the school system of like 3000 kids. Uh, so, but yeah, but I, all I remember is I studied really hard and went to uh, get a lot of extracurriculars to look good on my resume and work my ass off to get into to be the first in my family to go to college. Wow. Okay. So so you had this pressure to to go to college to to go to post secondary. What what was it that you wanted to do with that? You know the funny thing is, all I wanted to do was to get into college, and so when I did. I had no idea what was next. And it was the summer um, in between high, graduating from high school and going to college was this the first moment where I'm like, wow, uh, what do I do for the rest of my life? <laughs> because I just had one track mind. And that's when I realized you got to dream big. Like you don't want to be in the situation again where you've set the bar a little bit too low for yourself. And so I actually had zero idea. I mean, on the college essays, I talked about wanting to be an environmental engineer or, you know, working uh, with things related to the environment. But in all, in all, all honesty, I had no idea. I just wanted to go to college. Interesting. Interesting. Hey, future Alex here, just popping in to say you might also enjoy listening to Yeasel's podcast, The Serendipity Stories, a storytelling podcast that shares the beauty of life's most unexpected moments. Over the course of six episodes, host Yisel Kim shares stories of people who accidentally become mayors, are saved from the brink of suicide, 
and get second chances after being hit by a van. Subscribe to the Serendipity Stories wherever you listen to podcasts and check out their website at www.serendipitystories.co. Now, back to the show. So what did you end up studying in college? Yeah, so I um, am really a humanities person. But like I said, I don't like following the status quo. So I went to an engineering school (laughs) and I went to MIT and uh, we actually have a great humanities department uh, uh, that people don't really know about. It's a hidden secret. Uh, And originally I signed up for environmental engineering, couldn't really cut it with my math. And so I studied urban planning um, and without the ever the intention of becoming an urban planner, but I just liked the way it made me think. And someone in passing said it didn't really matter what you majored in, so I took it to heart. And uh, yeah, and I I fell in love with urban planning because I took this one class. It was called the Once and Future City. We had four assignments. We had to choose one area in uh, in Boston and visit it as many times as we wanted. But the first essay was just tell me what you see. Cool, right? Like I see buildings, I see people. The second was look through the maps and see uh, historical maps and see how the city and your little parcel has changed over time, which was really revealing. And then the third uh, essay was uh, talk about the artifacts, traces, and layers of the city. And so I started to see the same place that I walked by over and over again in a different way. I was like peeling back the layers and I really started seeing the city as as a live thing. And the true turning point for me was when I looked up and I saw that the trees on one side of the street were taller than the other. I was like, how many times have I passed down the street and never noticed that? And then it just stopped and I wondered, I wonder why? And I like started creating all these reasons, right? Like, oh, maybe they're younger trees. Oh, maybe they don't get enough sunlight. And this idea of curiosity and trying to create a story for myself, seeing that everything is interconnected is something that I've used in my career. Um, But that was the start of kind of my passion and my love for learning more about um, urban planning and the people who live in it and understanding the stories behind the city. That is so fascinating. Um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of urban planning. Uh, there are podcasts I listen to about it. Um, but then, so I, I'm I'm curious. Then, uh, did you graduate with a, a degree in urban planning? Yeah, I liked it so much. I stayed for a master's too. <laughs> really? Okay. Obviously, uh, like you said, maybe the major doesn't matter so much, but. Are, are you doing something with that? Do you hope to do something with that? Like, what's what's the plan? Yeah, so, like, in parallel, I, like, I'm a business person. I've been thinking like a business person since, like, it's it's in my blood. My entire mom's side and dad's side family, you know how some families have, like, a lineage of doctors or lineage of lawyers or accountants. Like, we've all been business people. And that's why in, like, our the history of the Kims has been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of rags to riches to rags to riches, uh, which we're living through, you know, a boom and bust right now. And, um, and so I always knew I would go into business and actually my first job outside, uh, since graduating with my master's in urban planning was working at Procter and Gamble 
and specifically at Gillette and specifically male body grooming, which we don't have to go into in this podcast. But um, this the the skills that I learned from urban planning, I've always used in the business context. And then I think the first time I really got to use it as a part of my career uh, was uh, my last real job, I'll call it, before I came to Italy as uh, the vice president of strategy for the Kendall Square uh, Business Association, which is a membership-based association for businesses in the Kendall Square area, which is adjacent to MIT. The idea is that, you know, the, the tagline is the most innovative square mile on the planet. And uh, it's kind of like the Silicon Valley of the East Coast. And, uh, you know, that was all about creating strategies, hyper, hyper local activism. Uh, we talked about transportation, but there was also the social, cultural and political aspects of how can we come together as a coalition to advocate for things that we care about, such as diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, it was also about community building. So I really got to to use those skills. But um, but the other jobs, I've never worked in the same industry twice. And I've had seven jobs in the last 10 years. <laughs> so I just kind of kind of jump around. That's interesting. Uh, was there a particular job that was your favorite in that time? Uh, in the past seven years, I've all, always learned something and taken something away. Like when I was at Gillette, there was a serendipity moment because I met my husband. Uh, I was on my way out and he had come from Italy. And uh, on I call him my exit package because I took his number <laughs> right before I quit and uh, kept trying to seduce him from, from afar and that uh, worked out. Uh, but I would say the most remarkable job I had was, um, so after Gillette, I worked in consulting because I wanted to get out of the consumer packaged goods space and kind of, I, I say like people become consultants when they don't know what they want to do <laughs> and, because, and you still get to do a little bit of everything. So I did that for a little bit. Uh, and then I had just like right on time, I had my millennial quarter life crisis and I'm like, ah, oh, I don't have purpose. Like I don't want to keep making rich companies richer. And so I took a mini sabbatical. And in that time, I was really fortunate enough to interview at a job that I actually turned down right after graduating, which was at a nonprofit called Ashoka. And Ashoka is um, the world's biggest convener of social entrepreneurs. They give un they give a $90,000 scholarship to people who are really into systems change. Like they're like people who can really see a problem and understand, oh, this is the linchpin. This is what we need to do to create the most effective change in our society. And so I was just surrounded by these uber smart, uh, what we call Ashoka fellows who are really making a difference in the world. Uh, but what, what, what still is so impressionable to me is how kind the people at Ashoka were, how kind my colleagues were, where, I mean, I'm a business person and I came in like to shape the operations and the systems of our North America division. And so I was like, productivity, let's go, let's go consulting hat. Right. And they would just stop me and be like, tell me, how was your weekend? 
And you, you know, you just say fine. I'm like, okay, let's go back to the agenda. They're like, no, really? Like, what did you do? How do you feel today? And I had never seen such kindness from people and I probably never will again because it's such a special place. I mean, to work at Ashoka, you have to do like six, uh, six to seven interviews, including one with the founder, Bill Drayton, who's like the God, he coined the term social entrepreneurship. So imagine like even all the way down to interns and like just, just, just uh, entry level folks have to do this interview with Bill Drayton and um, they're very selective in who they choose. And I guess the common thread is people who are really kind. Uh, and, you know, in my subsequent jobs, I've encountered folks who are not that kind, whether it's clients or other colleagues. Uh, and it just made me realize how lucky I was to be in that environment. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that does sound awesome. Um, and so going from there, having all of these different jobs um, and all these different experiences, meeting all these different people, uh, where are you at now? I don't really know where I'm at. I think it's going to take me some time. So 15 months ago, I moved to Italy with my husband, first to Rome, and then he switched jobs. And now we live in Treviso, Italy, which is in the north. And I remember coming here. It's a beautiful uh, walled medieval town where if you run around, it's it's 5K. And I think about like 5,000 people live in the city center and about 70,000 people if you include the periphery. And I remember coming here and I'm like, gosh, it's so boring here. Nothing exciting is going to happen. And then the coronavirus came and we were one of the first regions to get locked down. So I was like, I better watch what, <laughs> what I say. <laughs> So, you know, it's been a, a crazy year for everyone, right, with the coronavirus uh, and um, and then all these social movements that I think rightfully are people are, are paying more attention to. But um, I purposely decided to take a sabbatical since last September to focus on creativity, uh, to focus on storytelling projects such as uh, a podcast or writing a book. I've also started um, a photojournalism project called The Humans of Treviso, which is basically a knockoff of The Humans of New York as an excuse to get to know my neighbors and practice my Italian and, uh, and, and, and kind of get people to say hi to each other more on the street. You know, you would think in a small town, people would be much friendlier and they are once you get to know them. But I just kind of, you know, in my American brash way, <laughs> want to chip at those walls even even sooner. But it's really hard to say where I'll be six months, one year from now, because my past has never defined my future. I couldn't look at any of my past jobs. Right. There's no trend there <laughs> except that I keep moving around. Um, so I'm really excited to see how things turn out. Uh, I'm trying to practice what I preach about, you know, let, letting go and unlearning all these things. But I'm telling you, it's a really lonely and a really tough journey to do the work on yourself, to dismantle everything and try to rebuild it with no instructions. Um, and so I'm just trying to do it one one piece at a time. And saying yes to the universe and seeing where it takes me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really healthy way to go about things, you know, taking one step at a time like that. 
Um, so then you're, you're kind of here, you're figuring things out, you're practicing your Italian, um, uh, as, as well as spending a lot of, probably a lot of time, uh, locked down. Um, and so what, what, what's the plan going forward? Like, what's your, what's your ultimate goal? Like, what do you hope to accomplish? What's your big dream? The, the first goal is to have clarity, to be able to articulate what my purpose is, because I'm not worried about the how, like I'm a doer. So, you know, that's fine. But really feeling it, I think on a visceral and a gut level that this is the right thing to do and to stop compromising myself. Like when I think about the jobs I took, I think most of them are 80% there, right? Like, oh, it's a higher salary. Oh, it's a higher title bomb. Oh, like it's a bit of more prestigious organization. Oh, it's finally going to break me out of consumer packaged goods, whatever. It was very incremental. And what I'm looking for is exponential growth. And so in order to kind of get out of that linear path, it's, uh, I, I'm really trying to uh, start from scratch and really live my life based on the principles uh, that I value and stop compromising on my values. And so, you know, I have some ideas on where I think I might go. One idea is to work at a foundation, which I think is really cool to be uh, part of a platform that can raise other people up and their idea and their great ideas up. Um, because I, at this moment, I don't have a brilliant idea where I would be knocking on doors for money personally. So why not be on the flip side and, and raise others up? Another idea is um, going into the environmental field. I think we've seen and lived through uh, and, and have been watching our world literally burn and people not giving a shit. And it makes me mad. And I'm just, and it's been a slow burning fire and I'm just waiting for the fire to explode so that I can really, you know, like go beyond being anti-consumerist and living my best life, I want to make an impact and have a broad sphere of influence. So that's just another practical thing. But I think I'll be really content if I can be very happy. When, when people ask me, you know, what do you do? I don't want to answer with a title or an organization that I'm associated with. I want to respond with my life mission and purpose and when i can do that i think i'll be i'll be i'll be set and i'll and i'll know that uh, i'm good yeah yeah i think that's awesome uh i mean asking what do you do is such a uh such a i think sad question sometimes um because it's, it's very reductive isn't yeah, it yeah yeah it's like well i do a lot of things like I hang out with friends, I go to work, I do school, you know, it's like, what do I do? What do you mean? What do I do? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I like your approach with having that, having that purpose and trying to figure that out. Um, so this is the last question that I always ask everybody before, before we go through and, and plug everything that you're doing. Um, when you're at the end of your life, when you're looking back from the finish line, what are the things you're most proud of and, and pleased with? Oh, it's so tough. I'm going to have to think about this for a sec. 
I think the moments I'm most proud of are the moments when I stood up for my values and went against the current because it felt like the right thing to do. And it was the right thing to do uh, versus being a spectator. I, I mean, you know, I'm sure just as many times I've been complicit with my silence because of my own fears or whatever. But the moments I did stand up, whether it was someone making a passe joke about our neighbors downstairs because they were LGBTQ, right? And me saying like, that's not okay. Like they're not only are they my friends, but what you're saying is fundamentally wrong. Or, you know, raising up my hand in uh, an auditorium and asking the CEO of a company, how come, like, what's your strategy for diversity, equity, and inclusion? And not liking the answer and then following up with him. <laughs> like, it's not because I like being radical. It's because I think that we can't, the, we can't, I can't afford, the world can't afford more people to be, to, to, to be complicit in just letting others define their lives for them and define the narrative of not only their lives, but our culture and of our society and of our humanity moving forward. And those are the moments that I think I'll just be most proud of. That and and the projects that I had as ideas, but I've 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 executed and seen my vision through. I, you know, I didn't realize that people find it so hard to to execute. Like that's my strength. And and luckily um, I've given myself enough space to have ideas, uh, and, and I'm doing it for myself. Um, I hope other people like it, but it's, it's nice to kind of work on your own, own vision. So those two things. I, I always appreciate it when people feel comfortable, uh, sticking up for what they believe in and, um, and, and feel comfortable sticking their neck out and uh and and hopefully enlightening people as they go along um so so with that uh where can people find you and uh of course serendipity stories well i'm kind of allergic to social media to be honest with you but i mean if you must uh i'm on instagram at esel y-e-s-e-u-l dot m dot kim and uh but really I have uh, two projects in, in the works that I hope people will check out. The first is Humans of Tre Treviso, which in Italian is Gente di, Gente di Treviso. And uh, we're literally just like humans of New York. We're just going out, taking pictures and interviewing folks and putting their stories online. And you can find us uh, on Instagram and Facebook at Gente di Treviso. And then our beautiful podcast season one is out and about with uh, six episodes, uh, stories about unexpected moments and how beautiful they are in our lives. And that you can find on Instagram and Facebook at serendipitystories.podcast and also on our website at www.serendipitystories.co. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, all of those will be linked in the show notes. So if anybody wants to check them out, it'll be really quick. Just head down there and click. Um, but that's awesome. And I can vouch for serendipity stories. I used uh, Google Translate on the on the people of Trevisa. Um, and, 
and read a little bit, and that's great too. Um, so of course, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you for listening, not just to this show, which we certainly do appreciate, but more to the people around you, the people in your life that you just happen to know. Take some time, just five minutes, to listen intently to the people around you. Mecco.